This talk was given to a group of people sitting in silence during a meditation retreat. It is intended for a mind that is quiet and attentive. We invite you to enter into your own mini-retreat by sitting quietly and listening wholeheartedly. The teachings you are about to receive were freely offered. If you would like to make a donation to support their continuation, please visit us at dharmaseed.org. I think I could turn and live a while with the animals. They are so placid and self-contained. I stand and look at them sometimes half the day long. They do not sweat and whine about their condition. They do not lie awake in the dark and weep for their sins. Not one is demented with the mania of owning things. Not one is respectable or industrious over all the earth. That's from Whitman, Song of Myself. I'll read it one more time. I think I could turn and live a while with the animals. They are so placid and self-contained. I stand and look at them sometimes half the day long. They do not sweat and whine about their condition. They do not lie awake in the dark and weep for their sins. Not one is demented with the mania of owning things. Not one is respectable or industrious over all the earth. When I reflect on this, it, it kind of brings up a yearning in me. A yearning to relax into the simple, the clear, the the animal part of me. The part of me that at times can really accept the the graceful movement of nature. Accept it and accept it without a struggle. The part of me that just sees, just hears, just touches, and just loves. The part of me that when it's not obscured by the clouds of discursive thinking and fear, is very comfortable, restful, home-like, clear, spacious, simple. It's our deepest nature. In a large sense, a spiritual practice is an examination of who we really are. The gentle peeling back of the layers of an onion. Lovingly exploring what life is about. And, feeler, and feeling deeper into this connection with all creation. Now, when the Buddha, flesh and blood, just like you and I, cast his lot to the wind, became a, a wandering ascetic, what was he after? What was driving him? Well, it was a drive to know the truth. A drive to understand and to end his suffering. A drive to understand the simple, clear workings of nature. And to relax into that flow rather than resist it. 
That's what we do. That's what we've done here in this time together. So as the Buddha worked with his practice and cultivating his heart, sharpening his mind, stripping away the veils that obscure the truth from him, he ultimately lighted on three characteristics of existence that he felt were common to all of us. And he believed that the understanding of these characteristics on a deep visceral level was essential to our freedom. They're literally portals to complete freedom. And these portals are available to us now. And at the very least, they have the promise to drastically reduce our suffering. So the three characteristics are anicca, which is impermanence, dukkha, which is unsatisfactoriness or suffering, and anatta, the selfless nature of it all. And in the vernacular, we could, we could sum these three characteristics up. Maybe I should end the talk right here by saying life is hard. It puts us through lots of changes. But don't take it personal. But I'll go on anyway. Let's talk about impermanence first because it really helps us understand the other two. This is from uh, Zen Master Dogen. To what shall I liken the world? Moonlight reflected in dewdrops, shaken from a crane's bill. To what shall I liken the world? Moonlight reflected in dewdrops, shaken from a crane's bill. We get a little feel for the fleeting nature of it all from that. In that verse, the movement, the temporary flash of moment after moment. And we, when, when we look even in the most cursory fashion, we see that everything's changing. Seasons come and go, birds migrate, mountains erode. Um, I live in Virginia, we've got the Blue Ridge Mountains. Most people don't know that they're the oldest mountains in the world. And at one time, they were the tallest. Nowadays, the more adolescent mountain ranges, the Andes, the Himalayas, the Rockies, I mean, they dwarf our little, our little rounded, tree-topped mountains in Virginia. Mountains look substantial, but they're not. Life forms, changing, mutating, evolving, becoming extinct. Scientists now believe that we're in the midst of another great extinction. Three life forms become extinct every hour. That's 70,000 a year. Now, it's not the first time that this has happened. It's happened, they believe, that there's been two or three other mass extinctions where over 90% of the life forms on this planet disappear. Now, granted, humankind may be playing and exacerbating a role in this current mass extinction you know, rather than a meteorite strike or a polarity shift or volcanic activity. But whatever the causes of what's going on, uh, nothing remains the same. Everything is in motion. I mean, the continents still are drifting. 
Uh, if any of you saw that movie, The March of the Penguins, great, great movie. You remember that the narrator at one point in there said that, the, that Antarctica was once a tropical continent. All right, so it, and then it, it drifted to the South Pole. Now, the weather at the pole is a little different than it was in its previous history. I mean, just think jungle gradually uh, changing to this frozen moonscape. I mean, the lowland gorillas, the, the, uh, the palm trees, the wildebeest, all the beings that live there, uh, they wouldn't recognize their old home and they wouldn't be very comfortable in it right now. And the earth itself has never been in the same place more than once. It spins on its axis about 10,000 miles an hour. It's moving around our sun at 70,000 miles an hour. And our little solar system, the sun and the planets, is moving through space together at a million miles an hour. Where did we come from? Where are we going? Okay, our Milky Way, there's over a billion, they believe there are over a billion star systems like ours in our Milky Way. And the whole Milky Way is moving at a million miles an hour. And there are millions of these galaxies, like our, million, like, our, like our Milky Way, all moving. So, star systems being born, dying, colliding. Everything's in flux, motion. How big is it all? They don't have a clue. When researchers try to get their minds around this, um, it kind of morphs from the scientific into the mystical. All right, so let's put, down the, let's put down our Hubble telescope and we'll go the other direction. And scientists have developed more and more powerful instrumentation to look, to look at the micro. And we could say by doing that, they've, in a sense, they've like fallen through the rabbit hole right after Alice. So we've been able to look into the atomic, and now we're looking into the subatomic. And just the nature of the atoms, which is just that first level now, old stuff, is really enough to trip, trip, trip us out. If we were to take the nucleus of an atom, uh, the protons and neutrons, and blow it up to the size of a split pea or a pea, the electron that travels around it would be a half a mile away and the size of a piece of dust. Now, there's a considerable amount of space in there within that, within that atom. That's just the beginning. When they look closer into what's going on in the atom, or into that, into that nucleus of that atom especially, they find that they, are, that, that they are actually changing form millions of times in a second. And on closer inspection, it's just energy, just vibrating energy. These are fields of energy that we're just kind of learning about. Now, you know, Alice and the Cheshire Cat would love these nuclear physicists and astronomers. I mean, they really are the purveyors of magic in our culture now. Now, the Buddha, he understood this macro and micro world 
without the aid of, of you know, expensive hardware. No Hubble telescope, no electron microscope. His instrumentation was, however, very sophisticated, entirely organic, and close at hand. The six senses. Applying these six senses to directly experience all that he encountered. That's all that he needed. And that's what we've been doing here with our practice. Observing mindfully the arising and passing of phenomena over and over. Breath, body sensations, emotions, thoughts, sounds, internal, external. So as we practice, we might get a hint of the magical flow of all of this that we're involved in. You know, at some point, if you've been practicing for a while, you might, over the years, some of you might have had the experience that uh, when you're meditating, everything just starts, to, just starts to bubble. You know, it's like the body is kind of this champagne. Well, what might that be? It could very well be the direct effervescent-like experience of the movement of these subatomic particles. And that's what an early teacher of mine would say, uh, S.N. Gwenka, who some of you have studied with. Um, you know, and he teaches this repeated body scan where you scan the body for 10 days straight or 20 days, 30, 60, 90, however days you are and days that you're there. Um, no walking meditation. You just sit and scan and scan and scan. But, it, but eventually you get so sensitized to the energetic vibratory nature of this body that you literally are sensing at the subatomic level. Another teacher of mine called, uh, called this experience um, the activation of impermanence. Very powerful. So direct experiences like this when we meditate are different than just knowing the concepts. Scientists who measure this stuff can articulate the nature of change and spaciousness eloquently. But does it make them happier people? Do they suffer less than everybody else because they know this? Are they freer? Years ago in one of my businesses, I remember working with a nuclear physicist, um, he was actually in nuclear medicine, but he had a, he had a background uh, from the University of Virginia. And um, boy, it was great talking to him. He knew all this stuff forward and backward. Um, he knew that we, we and everything else were basically just vibrating space. He could articulate it and intellectually and talk about all the research. But his life was as much a mess as anybody else's. In fact, more so in his particular case. So knowing that things are impermanent intellectually is just the beginning. In fact, we're barely any movement at all. But not unless we take the training of sitting quietly, directly watching over and over the bubbling, arising and passing of of this creation we find ourselves in over and over until our cells actually start to know it.
accept it. Only then is our life transformed. And when the cells begin to accept this change, this impermanent flow of things, we start to relax more. The interior war that's going on starts to cool. That interior war where we're trying to freeze things and solidify them to, to be one way or the other, that begins to cool out. This from Pema Chodron. Impermanence is the goodness of reality. Impermanence is the goodness of reality. Just as the four seasons are in continual flux, winter changing to spring, to summer, to autumn, just as day becomes night, light becoming dark, becoming light again, in the same way everything is constantly evolving. Impermanence is the essence of everything. It is babies becoming children, then teenagers, then adults, then old people, and somewhere along the way dropping dead. Impermanence is meeting and parting. It is falling in love and falling out of love. Impermanence is bittersweet, like buying a new shirt and years later finding it as part of a patchwork quilt. People have no respect for impermanence. We take no delight in it. In fact, we despair of it. We, we regard it as pain and we resist it. Somehow in the process of trying to deny that things are always changing, we lose our sense of the sacredness of life. We tend to forget that we are part of the natural scheme of things. And the Buddha said, It is the nature of all things to arise and pass away. Happy are those who can live with this wisdom. So, as we explore outward, outward into the cosmos, we find nothing solid or stationary. And as we explore inward, we find nothing solid or stationary. There's a lot of change going on. And if, as Pema said, we regard this change as pain, then there's going to be a whole lot of pain going on. We'll struggle. And when we struggle, dukkha is known. Dukkha is another of the three characteristics of existence. It's got many shades of meaning. You'll hear it most often translated as suffering, but I also like unsatisfactoriness um, or stress as a translation. The Pali Canon describes dukkha in a range from the most intense mental and physical anguish to the subtlest sense of being burdened or confined. It's also been described as the oppressive nature of experience. Ajahn uh, Mahaboa, a Thai forest master, uh, he explained dukkha as whatever puts a squeeze on the heart Commentaries, which were writings after the Pali Canon, describe dukkha as that which is hard to bear. And the Buddha, uh, in describing his teaching, he says, I teach one thing and one thing only, 
suffering and the end of suffering. In fact, he, he thought the, the study and understanding of dukkha was so important that he made it the first noble truth, the truth that there is suffering, it exists. I mean, he saw it in everybody's experience, including his own. It manifests everywhere. He saw the inherent instability of life, of all of nature. And that when we're trying to cling to anything, life becomes a struggle, becomes difficult, stressful, unsatisfactory. The Buddha speaks of this clinging in the larger sense, and we've talked about it this week a number of times. That on one hand, trying to keep things as they are, if we like them, and on the other hand, of pushing them, them away if we don't like them. This grasping and pushing, they have the common characteristic of stickiness. When we're clinging, the mind is sticky, it's gooey. There's no flow or relaxation in the mind when we're clinging to things. The heart also tends to constrict. Someone once said that suffering is like rope burn. We're trying to hold on to something that's moving, that's always changing. Now, of course, there's plenty of happiness in life. No question about that. But since, thing, but, but since things are in constant flux, the chances are that whatever happiness there is right now won't stick around on a permanent basis. And lucky for us, the opposite is true. That whatever situation we find difficult, that too will change. So, basing our happiness on external conditions is an iffy proposition. If you can go out and create an environment where all the conditions in your life are favorable, and you can keep them that way, Congratulations. You're the first one. The first one able to do it. Look, even Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie have relationship problems. They're aging, you know, they're getting sick, they're dying. Well, maybe not Brad and Angela. They might be out of this. But for us, this is the case. Life is completely unreliable. And this, this nature is, is a moving target. Everything we perceive through our senses is unreliable in the sense that it's always changing. Our existence certainly is unreliable. We have a life sentence, we just don't know how long it is. Now all this instability can leave us sometimes a little shaky. Because there's not much in our direct control. The Buddha said birth is suffering. Decay is suffering. Death is suffering. Not getting what we want is suffering. There's, there's kernels of suffering even in, even in pleasure. Because we can't make it last. Okay, we get some pleasure. Invariably, it fades. So we go and we get some more. It fades. 
And we try to stack up pleasure one after the other. And they all kind of fade. We have to go chase it again. It's hard work to keep it all going. You know, if we look at the lives of the, of the rich and famous, you know, they, they often give us these, these exaggerated examples of this kind of gilded gerbil wheel. Around Charlottesville, which is a desirable place for people to live, there's a lot of these mansions. And whenever I've been able to visit one of them, these nice estates, fabulous horse farms, etc., you know, I'm out there, I think, well, God, this is just amazing. Wow. If I lived here, I would never want to leave. But um, invariably, the people who buy these get dissatisfied in a number of years, and usually a short period of time. And they want something new. So they sell it and move on. Looking for some new pleasure to fill the hole. Now we're not any richer than the, than the rich and famous. We're not any different than the rich and famous. No, we're certainly not any richer. We just don't have the means to play it out on that level. And chasing pleasure can be exhausting. Now let's, now let's talk about our body, this body of ours. It needs constant maintenance. We spend a good portion of our time trying to make this body more comfortable, satisfying its demands for housing, medicine, food, shelter, sex. I was looking at my address book the other day. I was changing it over. You know how sometimes it gets so cluttered and you and you make a new one and you eliminate the people that have passed away and people that you don't know anymore. And so I was noticing all the people that I hire to keep this body going now. When I was 20 years old, I occasionally went to a dentist. That was it. Now, yeesh. last few years, in addition to my GP, you know, I've seen a heart guy, a gastroenterologist, I didn't even know what that was. A dermatologist, orthopedic specialist of various kinds from my ankle, my knee, my hand, an osteopath, an OT, physical therapist, acupuncturist, dental surgeon. You know, I'm close to covering all the headings in the yellow pages. And you know something? I, I consider myself in pretty good shape, in excellent condition. <laughs> Just wait till I get old and sick. What's that going to be like? You know, this body, it's, it's, it's like an old English sports car if you've ever had one of those. You know, it's just tinker, tinker, tinker. You know, you just keep adjusting and tinkering to, to keep the darn thing on the road. Now, the body isn't the only sufferer. What about the mind? You've been sitting with this mind for these days, it won't listen. It does what it wants. It won't stay where we tell it to. It thinks shameless things. And it, for some reason, it, it tends to think about things that will make us unhappy. It obsesses. It proliferates from one thing to the next. It likes to worry, catastrophize. Now, if that isn't suffering, what is We suffer the the agitation of craving. The craving to stay alive. Very natural. 
It's our survival instinct, the craving to exist. Paradoxically, at times, we also crave non-existence. We want it to go away, all of it. And we're almost always craving sense pleasures. These are the big three cravings. Existence, non-existence, and sense pleasures. Well, friends, we can't win. All three of these cravings can't possibly be fulfilled. It's a hopeless struggle. And this is the real suffering. That's what the dukkha, or that's what the Buddha discovered in his practice. That's the dukkha he discovered. We're all engaged in this struggle for existence, and none of us are going to be here too much longer. Any sense gratification we can find is only momentary. And non-existence, self, you know, this, this self-annihilation is, is a pretty dark alleyway. Addictions, other self-harming behaviors, wanting to stop the hurt, cover it over, dull it down. That's a rough go. Even our night's loving thoughts go up in smoke. They don't stay. But if we can see clearly that our cravings cannot possibly be satisfied, if we can see that clearly, then we're at the spiritual crossroads of trying to find a way out of this dilemma. And this dilemma confronts every one of us. Nobody's exempt. You know, I'm thinking about the women at the prison where I teach. Many of them are lifers. And I think they understand suffering better than my other students. No offense. But when you're sentenced to life in a cage, eventually you see the futility in trying to to find your ultimate happiness in manipulating your environment. There's no loopholes for them. But there is a way out. And they're starting to feel their way there. Now, there's no loopholes for us either, but we think there are. We continue to think if we get some better conditions out there, some new possessions, a better work situation, a better relationship, that the suffering will stop. This from Pema Chodron again. Whoever got the idea that we could have pleasure without pain? It's promoted rather widely in this world, and we buy it. But pleasure and pain go together. They're inseparable. They can be celebrated. They are ordinary. Birth is painful and delightful. Death is painful and delightful. Everything that ends is also the beginning of something else. I like this part. Pain is not punishment. Pleasure is not a reward. Pain is not punishment. Pleasure is not a reward. We always tend to want to get rid of our misery. It's natural to do this rather than learn how it kind of interplays with our joy. And, and, the, and as we've 
learn this week that the goal of our practice isn't so much to cultivate one thing as opposed to another, but to relate properly to where we are right now, to relate to the current weather system. And by properly, I mean to relate to it with some acceptance and kindness. When we finally see the truth of dukkha and the futility of looking outside for relief, we eventually see that the way leads inward. And the first step inward is just acknowledging and recognizing the natural existence of this unsatisfactoriness, this suffering. The Hasids, uh, they had a saying that acknowledged the existence of suffering. They said that if God lived on earth, people would break out all his windows. If God lived on earth, people would break out all his windows. The other day before we came here, I was, I was, I was leaving the dentist office. My mouth was, was hurting, and I just paid this humongous bill, and I knew I'd have to be back to, to see this guy. I start up the car, and, it start, and I'm hearing the sound. I'm going, oh, no. I'm kind of close to where I have to change the timing belt, and I'm hearing this kind of rough sound. And, and I've got to get to this appointment on the other end of town. Charlottesville, it's not, it's not a big deal to get across town. But all of a sudden, there's all this traffic. And I knew there was a little road work, but then there was this accident, and I had to see these people because they were leaving town. And, and I'm sitting there, and I could feel my body kind of going, you know. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, oh, oh, this is suffering. This is dukkha. You know, and when I was able to come to this face-to-face recognition of what was going on, it kind of lightened it up. And, and I was able to see the suffering right in that moment that follows when, when I'm not able to accept things as they are. You know, it, at that point, it wasn't quite so personal. Okay, we talked a little bit about anicca and dukkha, impermanence and suffering. And if we can swallow the pill that, that everything is impermanent, and part of the reason that we suffer is that we kind of fight against this impermanence, all right, where does that leave us? I mean, I mean us, the me, the I. Are we self or selfless? Are we permanent in any way? <clears throat> There's a little piece from the Samutta Nikaya. the Buddha addressing a bunch of students. What do you think, bhikkhus? Bhikkhu, if you don't know, bhikkhu is a word for, generally it's monks and nuns, but it also really pertains to students of the Dharma. So he says, what do you think, bhikkhus? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir, they all say. Buddha again. Is that which is impermanent satisfying or unsatisfying? Unsatisfying, venerable sir. The Buddha again. Is that which is impermanent, unsatisfying, and subject to change, 
fit to be regarded thus. This is mine. This is what I am. This is myself. No, venerable sir. No. That which is impermanent, unsatisfying, and subject, subject to change is not fit to be regarded as mine or myself. So let's look at this third characteristic of existence. This concept of selflessness. It's the most difficult of the three. And we all have considerable resistance to it. The understanding of selflessness is the most enigmatic concept in all of Buddhism. So please, take it with some lightness and humor. Don't fret over it. Just kind of roll around in it with some interest. You know, when I drag myself out of bed in the morning and I, and I pass by the mirror, if I, if I have the courage to look into it, there's something staring back at me. Now, it isn't what I saw 30 years ago. Um, things have changed. Now, I get that part. But there's somebody there. In the conventional sense, I'm there and I'm separate. Nobody's exactly like me. You know, I'm a unique blend of these physical and psychological characteristics. We're all, in our own way, like snowflakes. All a unique expression of creation. I mean, that's beautiful. Now, at the same time that we say yes to our conventional, unique existence, we are deeply interconnected. From the uh, Yen school of Buddhism, we get the jeweled net of Indra, in which there's this vast cosmic net, and that each intersection is this jewel that reflects the image of all the other jewels. When we meet here and we're in each other's presence, um, you're part of my experience. I'm part of yours. It's all interpenetrating. We can feel the presence of each other. Just think how much you've learned about the neighbor who you've sat with all week and you haven't said a word. The separation, it's a conventional concept. It's convenient to refer to myself as me or I, as a separate self. But that belies the truth. There's more going on. Let's, let's look at this interpenetration from a, a, a kind of fun scientific standpoint. This is from Will Bryson's book called A Short History of Nearly Everything. All things are made of atoms. They're everywhere and they constitute everything. And they are in numbers you really can't conceive. At sea level, at a temperature of 32 degrees Fahrenheit, one cubic centimeter of air, a space the size of a sugar cube, will contain 45 45 billion molecules. A molecule contains a minimum of two atoms. And they are in every single cubic centimeter you see around you. Atoms, in short, are very abundant. They're also fantastically durable. Because they are so long-lived, atoms really get around. Every atom you possess has almost certainly passed through several stars 
and been part of millions of organisms on its way to becoming you. We are each so atomically we are each so atomically numerous and so vigorously recycled at death that a significant number of our atoms, up to a billion for each of us, has been up to a billion for each of us, it has been suggested, probably once belonged to Shakespeare. A billion each may come from Geng- Genghis Khan, Beethoven, and the Buddha, and any other historical figure you can think of. Now, the personage has to be historical as it takes Adam several decades to become thoroughly redistributed. So we are all literal reincarnations. That's kind of a pretty cool concept. Who are we? So maybe everybody in here has a kind of overdose of Buddha atoms, and that's why you get interested in this stuff. mystery. Now, if we take the conventional view of self, that it's something static and permanent, if we take that as the final word, you know, that really diverges from what the Buddha discovered. And with that view, suffering becomes highly probable. What we, what we seem to do is we unconsciously assign certain characteristics to this self, Characteristics that really aren't there. And that, that's what gets us into trouble, leads us into suffering. You know, you know, one way to explore what the self is is to determine what it isn't. So let's look at a couple of these hidden beliefs. One characteristic that we assign to ourself is continuity that this me or I or self is unchanging through time. You might feel that the same person listening to this talk is fundamentally the same person that went to that old grammar school and learned how to ride your bike at age five and had the measles at age seven and uh, got way too drunk at the senior prom. Now, the strength of our belief in this, in this continuity will interestingly affect our resistance to the usual changes in life. Aging, sickness, etc. Separation, loss. Depending on the strength of our unconscious, these beliefs are flying below the radar, depending on the strength of our unconscious belief in the continuity of this self, change will be change in our lives will be more or less difficult for us. Changes in our lives and also in the lives of those close to us. But it's all below the radar. Okay, let's go on. But remember, we want to hold this whole exploration lightly. Don't strain over this stuff. Just consider the possibilities. Be entertained by it. Let's look at another unconscious belief. We've also unconsciously come to believe that there's an observer. Someone who sits apart from this changing body, sensations and thoughts, emotions, you know, the whole deal. Someone who sits apart from it. Like the little person called the homunculus that the Greeks postulated. 
that sits somewhere inside us. They postulate this little man who, who kind of perceives and controls everything, kind of like the wizard behind the curtain. But even when we practice a lot, we still feel that there's an observer in there somewhere, even if we can't find exactly where he is. It's a persistent feeling that meditators have. But after investigating and investigating some more, we find that this felt observer it can't be pinned down in either form or location. So can this observing sense be me? Even if I really can't find it? Well, that's an inquiry. Just check it out. Another unconscious belief we have is this, that we have control. That we have some, some control over, some measure of control over this me. Now, if I had control over this body, heart, mind, um, I might choose to be a little younger, maybe a little smarter, a little more compassionate, maybe a little physically stronger, a little more balanced, a little more loving. And that list of support medical personnel wouldn't exist. But we don't have significant, significant control over our lives, over our body, our thoughts, our emotions. Okay, now, now we do make some choices in our life. And because of that, there, there, you can posit an argument that there must be something or somebody making those decisions. Okay. That's another point of inquiry. Check that out. So when the Buddha spoke of not-self, his point was that these unconscious assumptions that we have are really not true in any entity that we can discover. That there is no continual abiding entity. That there is no center of experience. No wizard behind the curtain. That we don't have control, ultimate control over this, over this I. And that there can't be found a, a, a central core. So if there's no abiding permanent self, and believing in one keeps us suffering, how do we break this cycle? How do we find the door? How do we get some traction? The answer is simple, but it's not easy. The answer is to practice what the Buddha taught. When the Buddha asks us to sit down and mindfully experience all the comings and goings, the changing body sensations, the changing thoughts, changing emotions, changing perceptions, the changing feeling tones that are embedded in in every experience, the pleasantness of this, the unpleasantness of that, when he asks us to mindfully watch all the changing sense spheres, our tastes, smell, sights, etc. When we do this long enough and carefully enough, experiencing this changing flow of all phenomena, eventually we start to loosen our grip on this seemingly solid, separate self. We start to relax into and feel this life more as a, 
beautiful, miraculous flow. More like a river than some solid object in, in opposition and contention with other solid objects. The relaxing into this flow is a very different experience than a life dominated by resistance. This is when suffering significantly starts to diminish. The struggle starts to let up. So this whole practice, we talked about it the other night with the Satipatthana Sutta, is designed to poke holes in this sense of self. Every contemplation, every meditation technique, all the body meditations, those around feelings, mind, the dhammas, all designed to poke holes in this sense of self. The Buddha spoke often about us not being self-existent, a single self-existent entity. He was really speaking that we're composed of all kinds of elements and, and that these conditions come together. And he said that all compound things are subject to dissolution. All compounded things are subject to dissolution. We're made up of systems. We have millions of living creatures within us. We're not self-existing. We are the result of everything. We have arisen due to causes and conditions. We can't control it. It's not ours. It's shaped by nature. We are nature. Anatta, selflessness, really brings home the point that we're not separate. We're not apart from this creation. This from Kabir. There is a secret one inside us. The planets in all the galaxies pass through his hands like beads. The planets in all the galaxies pass through his hands like beads. All those atoms vibrating and dancing. We're like the wave in the ocean. Seemingly separate, but ultimately connected to the vastness. And sure, we do get identified with the wave, the separate self, over and over. But our practice shows us we're all part of this infinite, mysterious thing we call nature. So tonight, we took a, a little bit of a look at these, these portholes these, into freedom, the three characteristics. Exploring impermanence shows us the truth of nature. And it points us to appreciating the preciousness of this creation, to savor this moving world and each encounter with our fellow, with our fellow beings. Because through the truth of impermanence, we know that nothing remains the same. And because of that, and because of that, Nothing or anyone can be taken for granted. Now, when we explore stress, the unsatisfactory nature of things, dukkha, 
by mindfully watching and paying attention to how we make ourselves suffer by clinging, by grasping and pushing so much. Ultimately, that teaches us not to grab on so hard. We let go a little more into the flow. We relax more into the beauty of this creation and not fight it so much. We actually start to learn to enjoy the ride, to surf the wave. And lastly, exploring the selfless nature of phenomena. As enigmatic as that is, that teaches us not to take ourselves so seriously. To maybe even come to enjoy this kind of magical cascade of sensations, thoughts, and emotions without, without feeling so desperate, without feeling so much ownership. And as we watch over this internal phenomena of change rolling on and on, we can, we can ease up and not feel so driven to defend this self, to pump it up. A self that's changing moment by moment. It's not continuous. It's not permanent. It doesn't have a core. And when that begins to happen, our burden really gets lighter. And with a lighter burden, we can kick back a little more and enjoy this wonder that is our life. It's a short wonder, but it is a wonder. So I'd like to close with one of my favorite poems by Hafiz. It's called Deepening the Wonder. Death is a favor to us, but our scales have lost the balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in a tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks, And as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and mystery is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us. But our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. Thanks for your attention. Let's just sit for a moment or two. This talk was given by Pat Coffey at Insight Meditation Society on March 8, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.